0: Think about how much you miss restaurants. People, the tastes, the smells, the drinks. Man, I miss the drinks. But no matter how much you miss going to restaurants right now, I'm sure you don't miss being there as much as Frank Stitt misses you being there. Stitt won the 2018 James Beard Award for the most outstanding restaurant in the country for his restaurant Highlands Bar & Grill in Birmingham, Alabama. It's one of the highest honors in the culinary world and it was the first time it had gone to a city of Birmingham size. But when the coronavirus shut down restaurants around the country, Highlands had to close its doors along with Frank Stitt's other spots. Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and today we are examining the pandemic's impact on Southern food. Frank Stitt joins us to talk about how closed restaurants affect a lot more than just the chefs and the staff. It ripples all the way up the supply chain. We also talk about how independent restaurateurs are getting left out of the stimulus money and how deeply ingrained food culture is in the South. And we also talk about what Frank is doing while he's staying home. And now we invite you to relax. Let us pull up a chair while we proudly present The Reckon Interview. Hey, Frank Stitt, thank you for coming on the Reckon interview.
1: Well, John, it's nice to be with you. It's good talking with you.
0: You're in a strange place right now. You are a uh, James Beard award-winning restaurateur. In 2018, we named the most outstanding restaurant in the country. But right now, the doors to your restaurant are closed and have been for about a month and a half at this point. Is that right?
1: That's right. Yeah. It's just, um, it seems like for forever right now, but hopefully things will be changing in the not too distant future.
0: What led to your decision to close your doors? I know that you did it before Governor Ivy and Mayor Randall Woodfin there in Birmingham mandated it, but what led to you closing your doors?
1: Well, Partisan I, my, my wife and, and partner decided that it was just too dangerous for our staff. In our restaurants, we work very close together. And so Just within the the constraints of that, we felt as though that that was not going to be a real ideal situation for us to basically to keep this uh, disease from spreading.
0: Now, there has been a lot of talk. There has been some conversation about, you know, reopening the state of Alabama for business and, and phasing in kind of the gradual return to restaurants. The public kind of seems divided on that. There was a morning consult poll that came out this week that said, you know, just under 20% of people would feel comfortable eating in a restaurant in the next month. That kind of jumps up by 25%, you know, in three months and 25% more in six months. And obviously a lot of that might change as we continue to flatten the curve. What would need to happen in order for you to feel like you could open your doors safely and responsibly, both for your workers, but also for your customers?
1: Well, right. Well, first, one of the things that we're going to try to implement is a curbside service, so that people would place an order and come in and pick up the food. And so we hope to begin that next week at Botega, and then maybe as if we can work that out, do it at Chez Fonfon Fon and then eventually at Highlands. But to your question, you know, the way I see the my crystal ball is that it's going to be another month or so before we're going to be comfortable opening our restaurants. There was a funny YouTube video that showed a server at a cafe walking out, keeping 1.5 meters, six feet from the table and just tossing a glass of water and tossing the silverware <laughs> at this table. You know, I'm, So I'm not in a giant race to, to get back. I, I do think that uh, the, the virus needs to slow down, and and then we are going to have to really change the way we do business and create a lot more space in between our tables, and and then of course you know we we're going to have to be really really careful about gloves and masks and just our sanitation and protocols.
0: Well, and I guess that kind of begs the question of what restaurant regulations might look like in the future. You know, health inspections. Does the use of masks or gloves or table distance, does that start to be a factor in how restaurants are inspected and regulated? Have you heard any conversations about how that, that might change on a state level?
1: We we haven't yet. We, we haven't yet. I think that we're just going to have to wait and see. So much of where we are right now is wait and see, go one day at a time, one week at a time. But I do think that you're right. There are going to be a, a lot of people that, would probably prefer to come and pick up some food. Hopefully, they they they're missing our foods at Highlands and Bottega and Chephampham. In that, we will. I think that that's probably something that's here to stay. So, a part of our business model will probably be doing more to go food, and then having more room, you know, in the dining rooms and the bar. I mean, I don't if you have much uh, experience in our restaurants, they're typically bustling. They're exciting. People are kind of know one another. It's lots and lots of regulars that make up our community. And this is kind of that third space. I don't know what it's going to take to get back to that.
0: I know that like food is something that brings people together around the entire world. Of course, it's a true sign of the times when Ireland has closed all of its pubs. But the South, is also a place where, like, the importance of that shared meal, of that common restaurant experience, that third space, like you're describing, your restaurants that seems very much wound up in our DNA and our psyche. And right now, we don't have that. You know, right now, everybody's eating at home. Some people who can are supporting their local restaurants through takeout. What is it about our relationship with food that seems unique to the South?
1: I think for, for me and for a lot of us that uh, grew up in the South, have a personal connection to the farm. In in my case, it was my mother's family, my grandparents lived right outside Coleman, just a couple of miles from where I grew up. And that farm experience of going out, and right now we would be going out to pick strawberries and asparagus and getting the garden ready for the summertime and so I think that that seems like it's in our DNA even if you didn't have a grandparent you knew an uncle or an aunt or a cousin you were uh, more closely connected to uh, to the farm and to me that's really why I think I love what I do so much is that I'm still so excited about that relationship with our farmers and with our fishermen and the people that raise our beef and lamb and chicken. And so those ingredients are what sparked my enthusiasm and my excitement for coming up with dishes. And it's always bound by the seasonality. And so I think that that expression of the season and of our culture in our kind of micro little area here in North Alabama, those things are something to celebrate. And I think that that's what drives me and excites me. And I think that, you know, when we started a long time ago, when we would identify that the farmer that had the great tomatoes, that those were the white truck tomatoes that we would buy at the farmer's market, and then we would dig down a little deeper and tell a little bit more of a story of the person that grew those vegetables and that store the love and the respect for the land that went into it. There's almost a transcendental something that happens where you can feel that love and that respect come all the way through the cooking onto the plate into the experience of being in our dining
0: room. There's a whole supply chain involved in the restaurant business, whether it's sourcing local ingredients, sourcing local bread makers, sourcing local flours. I know that your restaurants uh, across Birmingham employ around 150 people, but what are some of those other ramifications that, you know, when restaurants can't stay open, that may be affecting farmers in Coleman or maybe affecting the state budget overall? what happened?
1: Well, I was just uh, reaching out to some of our farmers that uh, just earlier this morning and getting a sense of what's going to be available next week and the week after. And so, so they have really, really you know, have relied on the restaurants so much. They've gone to more CSAs. There have been more market deliveries. They're doing more home deliveries. And so they're trying to hang in there, but still I'm sure that the amount of crop that they anticipated uh, selling is way down since the bulk of their sales would go to restaurants. And so... You know, so but we're trying to do what we can to to help them and to distribute some food uh, for them. And you're talking about local bakers. You know, that's something else that that we really you know rely on some real artisan bakers. And one of our bakers, as we were get preparing food for all of our staff to come and pick up, he baked. 40 loaves of bread that the mill here in Bessemer provided him with hundred bags of flour. And so he was generous enough to bake that and we could distribute that to our staff. You know, I don't know how long people can hang on, but I'm afraid it's going to be a while and people will find it in their heart to try to help each other out.
0: Yeah. As I've been reading some of our business and economic coverage from around the state, you know, one thing that's really struck me is whether it's the small business community in Birmingham or small businesses on a main street in Gadsden or down in Fairhope or up in Huntsville, you know, the people seem to be coming together to take care of each other as much as they can. That isn't necessarily always going to be a long-term sustainable solution. And so one of the things that was supposed to be able to help small businesses Was the Paycheck Protection Program as part of the uh, stimulus package? You and uh, an organization that you're part of, called the Independent Restauranters Coalition, have been very outspoken that this Paycheck Protection Program (PPP) did not work as intended. What are your thoughts on its accessibility? I mean, it, it ran out of money within a matter of a few weeks. It was supposed to be intended for small businesses, and then we've seen, and I and I have no disrespect to to large chains like Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, but we've seen that chains like Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, which may be independently owned on a local level, but are a national chain, have been able to get quicker access to this money than perhaps some restaurants like yours. Well,
1: right. Well, the PPP is just not working for restaurants. It's uh, providing lots of money for different businesses. I've heard a Story about an accounting firm that maybe had eight or 10 partners, uh, mid sized, small, in that they were able to get $800,000, but and they're still do, able to do their work. They can work from home. But for the, us in the restaurants, the, there are a couple of things. One is when when the date starts that you get your money, assuming you get some money from PPP, then you've got to have, I think, 90% of it go to employees, but then you've got all of these other bills, and you've got to pay up all of your past bills for the inventory, and so I think that there was something like 67% of the employees in America that were eligible for this were for restaurant people, but... 7% of PPP goes to the restaurant world. It was just written in such a hurry. And there is also the real possibility that even if we get this, we may not be able to have a forgivable loan on this because of the stipulations. And so it's really, it was not intentional. It was not mean, I don't think, to single out restaurants for it to specifically not work for but so, right now, the independent restaurant coalition that I'm working with is uh, fighting for a stabilization for the restaurant independent restaurants. But Congress is not going to be able to work on this for another three or four weeks when they're back in session. And so, and now it's getting very partisan about who gets what. But the one thing that we do hope is that there's this carve out for independent restaurant for a stabilization fund. If Congress, when they get back together, if we're going to be fighting for that, so that otherwise, a lot, a lot of restaurants are not going to be able to reopen, or if they do reopen, they're going to not be able to stay open, because it is a, an industry that is low margins i think that typically you know if you're lucky you're you're happy to get a 10% profit but there's just a whole lot of work there are a whole lot of people that go into it a whole lot of lives and one of the things that on a, on a more human side is just uh, my wife and I having a, a Zoom meetings with our staff and some of our key management, and just the, the love and the excitement and how much we enjoy this crazy work that we do, but and how we're looking forward to being back and working these crazy hours that we do and being with the the people that is are very much a team.
0: You know when you spend all day cooking for a living, you don't necessarily want to cook to relax and unwind at home like so many of us who are not in the industry might do. Are you cooking at home more now than you maybe were before? Is that something that you've taken the time to do?
1: Yes. In fact, that's, that's an enjoyable part of the restaurant leaders. We are on a... Um, a little chain texting and photographing the food and commenting on each other's and so there's actually there's a group of about 20 or so of us from all over the south and the country that's been a lot of fun and in fact my wife is has been baking for the first time and making our own pizzas and we have a farm where we have this the most incredible lettuces and arugula and cabbages and collards and chard and spinach and so that's been wonderful to be able to harvest and to incorporate that and i've been able to to hit my wine cellar kind of hard too so uh
0: you and me both.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, I think alcohol consumption has has spiked for, for a lot of people. Coming up after the break, Frank Stitt discusses what led him into fine dining in the first place. Are you experimenting with anything that you maybe hadn't traditionally cooked before? I mean, you mentioned pizzas. Or is there some other cuisine that you are dabbling in?
1: There's uh, more Mexican and... Latino food that I'm just finding uh, I love so much. We had the nopalitas, little cactus salad, and uh, these wonderful kind of sauces with tomatillos and tons of cilantro and avocado and onion. So that's, you know, I'm a pretty Eurocentric-based chef, and the Mediterranean food is what's really is always influenced me. But and even some Thai food, I, I really love the flavors from Southeast Asia and from Central America.
0: Now, you grew up in Coleman. At what point did you kind of realize that food and, I mean, fine dining would have been the industry that you would wind up in?
1: After high school, I ended up, uh, I was at Tufts University and outside Boston and then for two years and then ended up in the Bay Area and going to school studying philosophy at UC Berkeley. But it was during that time when I started love to eat and also fell in love with wine and I was able to apprentice as a chef to a Swiss chef, Fritz Leuenberger, in San Francisco, this was 1975, and he took me under his wing and we would make pate- I mean, for the first few months, I would just chop onions and carrots and celery, you know, and, and there was a Mexican dishwasher who made this exotic thing to me, ceviche. It's just phenomenal. But Fritz, who had worked literally around the world, was this guy, this chef who very traditionally properly trained, but who would get so excited with the flavors of the food. And he would just just almost swoon uh, on tasting his pate or doing a paella or a shrimp curry. And he was a big influence. And so I worked my way through a number of French restaurants in San Francisco and ended up interested in the cultural side of it, the historical side of food and wine, and Chez Panisse was doing really groundbreaking things, and so I volunteered and worked for free and helped out at Chez Panisse, and it was there that Jeremiah Tower, the first chef, was doing phenomenal food, and things. we would have things like Rainbow trout from Big Sur from the Garapata stream would be shipped up the day it was caught and layered with bay laurel leaves. And then we would poach it in a court bouillon and remove the, the skin and make a chervil butter with some of the reduced fume. And it was classic, beautiful French cooking. Very much uh, just something that I, I fell in love with. And the, the mentor for Chez Panisse was a man named Richard Olney he was a great food writer in France, expatriate American. And so I was able to get Alice to write a letter of introduction. And I said, I've got to meet this person. And so he was in London and doing a a 25 volume series of cookbooks, The Good Cook. And so I met him and he needed an assistant, an extra set of hands. And so I was able to help out and then met him later at his house in the south of France and was able to to work with him and cook with him and he introduced me to Julia Child and Simca Beck and I was Simca's assistant. But all that to say is then that, that time in France, I knew that I was whether it was going to write about it or produce it, I was going to be involved with food and wine one way or another.
0: When did you decide to return to Alabama and open a restaurant here?
1: I came back from France, it was kind of, I didn't really want to leave, and that was 1978. And then I worked as a wine steward and a food and beverage assistant director at a Hyatt hotel here. I had this idea, well, wouldn't it be interesting to, to live in the Caribbean and open a restaurant there? So we went down, and the next day in Charlotte Amalie, in St. Thomas, I met a person in a bar, who needed an executive chef, and I uh, went and got the job, and my girlfriend worked as a dining room manager, so we worked there through the season. Oh. Eventually, we were in St. Bart's and Antigua and sailing and realized it was a great place to visit, but not a place you really want. I wanted to live 12 months of the year, and then came back and then started thinking, well, maybe I can do a restaurant in the South, and so I thought about... Savannah or Charleston or Atlanta. And then I, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that my family's connection in North Alabama was a good thing. It was not something I needed to continually run away from. And so Birmingham became the spot and then opened Highlands in 82.
0: And, you know, now it's kind of considered a foodie town, but that was sort of a bold step back in 1982. Yeah, You didn't have a whole lot of Peers in the in the fine dining industry in Birmingham, you know. In football, we think about coaching trees and things like that. And I know that a number of chefs who have gone on to do great things in the South and in the Birmingham area have come through your kitchens. I believe that Clifton Holt over at Little Savannah, he's he's from Coleman, right? And I've I've heard him talk about you kind of giving him a, a shot. Uh, he has a fascinating story of his own. How much of that mentoring of of local chefs? Is happenstance and how much of it is intentional?
1: Oh, I think a lot of it is happenstance. I mean, I think that when you're passionate and excited, people see that enthusiasm and they see your mind and creativity and and this creative intellectualism about understanding the traditions of a dish. And when you share that, other people are drawn in by that. And I I get real excited about those ingredients that are a particular traditional dish and try to find this perfection of balance. It's an aesthetic that is in this pursuit of beauty, in, in essence. And so... I do think that uh, whether Kyle Knoll, who is a chef that now is running one of the at the Equinox uh, Hudson Yards, was someone as a young kid who started working with us, and now is working with some of the greatest, doing some of the best food ever. And there's uh, a couple dozen chefs uh, around the country uh, that have come through our kitchen, and I think that there was something about the spirit, the way that we organize the the, the food and the, the service and this, this sense of hospitality that is based on my studies of existentialism and authenticity from UC Berkeley.
0: That's interesting. You don't ne- necessarily think of existentialism in the food space, so I'm curious as to your philosophy on that.
1: Well, I had a really great professor, Bert Dreyfus, who was one of the leaders in 20th century philosophy, And that, from what I took away from it, it was that it doesn't really matter if you are a cobbler who makes shoes or a rocket scientist, but if you can be so committed to being as authentic and as honest and to have as sincere as an approach, and a real care and respect for the whole gestalt, the whole essence of the thing. It it doesn't really matter what you do if you're a cook or a surgeon. And so I think that some of that has defined our work ethic and our excitement about what we do. Very cool. By the way, my dad was a surgeon. And his dad was a country doctor that delivered thousands of babies. And I was Frank Stitt third. And I was a, as a child, I would go in the operating room and scrub up and would watch him perform surgery. And he was so proud of his craft and his how fast and how good he was. And he did more surgery than almost any other doctor in the North Alabama. And I have such respect for that. but as I was considering this and considering his life of uh, having occasionally a child being burned and, and having this child maybe not live in the, the horror of, of that reality was, had an impact on me. And I saw one of the other things that he and my mother allowed us is that we would go to medical meetings in New Orleans or New York or San Francisco or Chicago, Miami, and we would go to the great restaurants. I remember as an eight-year-old going to the Four Seasons in New York, uh, 1963 World's Fair. We were up there for that, too. And just the drama, the excitement, the beauty, the incredible food, the pleasure, the sensuousness of that experience was just phenomenal, and there was a dream it was romantic I remember a similar thing being at Brennan's in New Orleans and smelling these aromas of garlic and parsley and wine and brandy and just being enthralled by that experience.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. I've had the chance to live in a few different places around the country. And so I'll have friends from California who will come and visit us in, in Birmingham or friends from Maine, friends from Chicago and DC. and. You know, I think it's a testament to to the culture that you and your peers in the city have created that so many of their favorite meals have have either been at Highlands or Bottega or, you know, a place like Saw's Soul Kitchen and Mm -hmm. things like that, that like that Birmingham's food reputation is right there with New Orleans. And, you know, I I lived in San Francisco for a while. I can certainly say that you you can eat food of its equal for for considerably lower of a price in Birmingham than, than you can out there right now. And, I think a lot of that was recognized in 2018, when after was it ten straight years of, of being a finalist that you were finally recognized as the outstanding restaurant in America. Is it disappointing to not be a finalist anymore? <laughs> you, you know, you're not you're not being listed there each year. Do you feel uh, do you feel no. left over now?
1: <laughs> no, no, not at all. I, I think it every year for ten years going up there, and that was thrilling. But however, I had was pretty much resolved that it would never happen. I just didn't think that there were the demographics that enough people would eat in our restaurant, come to Birmingham versus how many people get to go and eat and vote for a restaurant in any other major city. And so, it, and as you you know, it's is a team. It is the whole group of us at the restaurants. And, you know, we've got, there are four people that have been with me since day one, uh, since 1982. So, and there are just dozens and dozens of people that have been with us for over 10 or 20 years. And so, yeah, the Beard Award, recognizing us as outstanding restaurant in America, was phenomenal, and that it does give us some credibility. However, it makes us realize that we can't let our guard down. We can't coast. We have to push to excel all the time. Yeah, it was really thrilling that I think there were eight of us of our core team that were there, and it was so thrilling to to be up there uh, for everyone else besides myself to get that kind of recognition.
0: How's your team doing right now?
1: I think they are hanging in there. Part of just went and we, we had a surplus of eggs and lettuces and a few other things from our farm. And we distributed to some of our uh, key folks. In fact, this case, it was mostly the people that do prep and dishwashers. And so, you know, I worry about the folks that, you know, don't have any unemployment insurance, So that is a real concern, and so we hope that by getting back open and doing some curbside, and eventually employing more and more, that we'll be able to, you know, to to employ more and more people that really do need a
0: job. For those out there who are listening, who want to help, who want to support in some ways, you know, I'm sure people will be rushing to order food from you as soon as they're able to. But are are there certain funds, charities? groups in Birmingham and in Alabama that you would recommend?
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, please go to our website and there is a, uh... Stitt Restaurant Group fund that you can find there on our website, that Partners was reluctant for us to do that because, it, it I mean, none of that will go to us, 100% of that will go to our staff. But there were so many people that were contacting us that were asking that, how can we help? And that outpouring has just been uh, amazing. And so we're going to be able to distribute some money and to our staff, I mean, the 150 people that, you know, I'm afraid a lot of people live paycheck to paycheck. And so it's it's so important that we do get back. But of course, it's a balance of you don't want to get back too quickly and people get sick. So, uh, so it's a tough situation.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today, Frank. And I know we all look forward to the days that y'all are Open for business.
1: Well, I can't wait to see you in the restaurant. Please let me know. I'd love to show you around in the kitchen and just uh, have a glass of wine with you.
0: Yeah, sounds great. And that's all the time we have this week, y'all. I should note that after we recorded this episode, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse and Shake Shack both announced they'd be returning their federal loans. Thank you to Frank Stitt for his time. And surprise, he's giving us a little more time later this week. We had so much fun doing our first Reckon Interview live last week that we're bringing you two this week. And we're doing it for a good cause. Tune into the Wreckin' Facebook page on Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central for a conversation with Roy Wood Jr., one of the best comedians out there and our very first Reckon Interview guest. And then on Thursday, we'll have another live conversation with Frank Stitt about his current steps to reopen his restaurants. And during both events, we'll be raising money for Alabama food banks. So check it out and help if you can. This episode was executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammondtree, and it was produced and edited by Abby Gibson at Edit Audio. If you like Reckon, follow us everywhere on our social media and sign up for our weekly newsletters. And hey, if you're feeling generous and stuck at home, leave us a five-star review, and that'll help us spread these great stories from around the South. And until next week, be well.